We're going to be looking this morning at Matthew chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. Matthew chapter 12, verses 14 to 21. And I just want to read that for us so it's fresh in our mind. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 14. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. As I said, we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, but as we come to this text here this morning, it's important to zero in on the key verse of the verses before us, and that would be verse 18, where God says, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. That's really the key to understanding these several verses before us this morning. Um, It's a title that is given to Jesus Christ by God the Father. Behold my servant, my beloved. There's a lot of different titles in the Bible that are given to Jesus Christ, but there's probably none that speaks more of the character and the attributes and the relationship and all that was involved between the relationship of the Father and the Son than this one this morning. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. Uh, It comes from Isaiah chapter 42, and you can read through uh, Isaiah 42 right through chapter 53, and there's several times where the Messiah is called the servant of Jehovah, or God's servant. Here we see my beloved servant. That's how he is addressed by his own father. And it kind of introduces us here to a very significant passage and what, what is happening here, just so we understand, we've, we've come through chapter 11 and chapter 12, and you, if you recall those messages, if not, you can get the tape or go online and listen to it uh, online, the CD, whatever. Um, but as we looked at those different passages in, in Matthew chapter 11 and up through 12 here, we realized that there was different reactions to Christ. All along, Matthew is trying to bring forth Jesus Christ as God's Messiah, as his king, the savior of the world. And when we come to chapter 11, we begin to see people react not in favor to Christ. We saw the illustration of doubt. That's one way to treat Christ. People doubt who he is. There's another uh, reaction, that of criticism or even indifference. And finally, we see here open rejection uh, in the end of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12. And ultimately, that leads to blasphemy. They begin to create an attitude that says, well, yeah, he does miracles. Jesus Christ does miracles and everything, but he doesn't do them by the power of God. He does them by the power of Satan. That's how far down the road they were in the rejection of Christ. And all of these 
these reactions were led by the religious leaders. It's kind of interesting. The religious leaders of Jesus' day led all these reactions. They were involved in every one. The Pharisees and the scribes. And they were threatened by Christ. And so they were the religious leaders and they were the ones turning the tide against Christ himself. And so here we come to chapter 12. And God, through the sovereignty of his Holy Spirit, moves Matthew to quote Isaiah. And in that quotation, it's almost as if God is saying, yeah, that's what they think about you, Jesus. But here's what I think about you, my own son. I know you're my servant, my chosen servant, that you're my beloved. And so you see the opposite reaction from God the Father toward his own son. God is saying the very opposite about Christ from what the world is saying, from what the religious leaders of his day were saying. Now we know that in verse 14 they held a council, it said, they wanted to hold a council, and the council wasn't uh, to decide on whether or not they should kill Jesus, but how. That's what they were going to decide. They weren't, they weren't bringing people together in, in verse 14 there of chapter 12 saying, okay, yay or nay, should we take this guy out or not? That wasn't their plan. That wasn't their purpose. It says there that they might decide how they're going to destroy him. So it wasn't if they're going to destroy him, but how. And the thing you have to understand is it was so important to them how they did this because of the crowds that were following Christ. But when, in verse 18 there, he calls his own son, my servant, behold my servant. That word there is kind of an original, it's a a different word in the original. And a lot of times it's translated servant, but more times it's translated son. So you can actually look at that word as kind of almost even a combination, as a servant's son. That's a fitting word for Christ. As, he, as the father refers to him as the servant son. It's referred to in secular Greek when it refers to an intimate or a trusted servant in the household. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, we see in Genesis chapter 4, that same word is used of Abraham's chief servant. Or in Genesis chapter 41, verse 10, it speaks of a royal servant. All those are the same word. In Job chapter 4, it speaks of angels who are supernatural servants. And so he's saying here, this is my servant, not just any old servant, but this is my servant, my son's servant, the trusted, the intimate one, the chief one, the royal one, the supernatural one. And then he adds that phrase, my beloved, also there in verse 18. And that's taken from the Greek word, Agape, which speaks of the highest kind of love, the most loved. As a matter of fact, over in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul refers to Christ as the beloved one. In Colossians 1, I think it's verse 13, he calls him the dear son or the beloved son. See, you have to understand the relationship that they have between the father and the son. It's a precious relationship. It's a very intimate relationship. And so when people start berating the Son of God in the way that they were doing it, you better believe it gets the attention of God the Father. 
just like it would any of us. Somebody starts picking on one of our kids, what do we do? We come to their defense. And so we're introduced to the son here by the father who says he's the servant's son, the beloved. And that's in spite of what these religious leaders think. It's almost like here, in your face. That's kind of what he's doing. In John chapter 5, Jesus says there's no greater testimony than that of God the Father to the Son. And that's what's happening here. We see that. We see a glimpse of that from the prophet of Isaiah. And as we look through this text, uh, there's, there's various points that we want to kind of pull out of this. John MacArthur, in his commentary, referred to him as the characteristics of Jesus Christ. And he lists nine of them. The first one there we see in verse 14. It says that the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they they might destroy him. The first characteristic about Christ as the servant was that he was condemned by the false servants. He was attacked by those who portrayed themselves as God's servants, but they really weren't. You notice that they weren't interested in how or if they were going to destroy him, but how. And they were intimidated by two things. The crowd that followed Christ and also the Roman government. Because both of those two issues were at hand. So they couldn't just go out and kill Jesus. They'd be in trouble with the Roman government because they took away the right for them to to do any executions. Then you had all these people you had to deal with. If you went out and killed their leader, what kind of reaction would would they get from that? And so they needed to plot a way in which they could take Jesus out that would be most effective. Luke even adds The parallel passage in Luke, it says that they were filled with rage and fury. And they were mad because, you remember, we just got done talking about when we were in this section before, how Jesus kind of turned over their their man-made Sabbath rules. Remember that? And if you want to get somebody upset, attack the religion. And that's what Jesus did. He looked at the Pharisees and, and their whole religiosity and said, hey, you know what? I'm not playing this game. And they got ticked off. And he shattered those man-made rules. And he showed that they weren't, they weren't to be respected. And Mark tells us that they were so bent on getting Jesus, they were so upset, they were so frustrated that the Pharisees even reached out to a group that they would never reach out to, the Herodians, because the Herodians were basically people who followed Herod. And they they were there to lift up Herod. Well, Herod was a Gentile. You would never do that as a Jew. But the Pharisees were so bent on getting Jesus somehow, they even reached out to them, Mark says, a group that they would probably have nothing to do with otherwise. I think it's funny sometimes when people come together over certain things. When you mention the name of Jesus in public, it doesn't matter what religion people are from, if they're not for Jesus, you're going to hear about it. And all of a sudden, they're all on the same side. They may hate each other, but they're all against Jesus. That's all they know. 
And that's the way the world is. And that's the way the world was in Jesus' time as well. These kind of efforts bring different people from different backgrounds together. And we see here that that's what's happening. And so in Matthew chapter 12, verse 14, is kind of the, the culmination of all this open rejection. And what has happened? These nine chapters have presented his majesty. In the 10th chapter, sent out the messengers, you remember. In the 11th and 12th chapters here in Matthew basically talk about this rejection that the Lord received. And they concluded, it's hard to understand this, but they concluded the very opposite of the truth. And that's what happens a lot of time when people are deceived. They not only concluded that he wasn't the Messiah, but they even concluded that he was straight out of hell. That all the power that he mustered and showed him all the miracles that came from Satan, Beelzebub. You wonder why, a little later on here, it seems that they are so deep in the pit that the conclusion that is drawn, basically, that salvation for them was an impossibility. See, when you're willing to reject the Son of God and attribute to him works of Satan, There's little or no hope for you. What's going to happen? The only way you can be saved is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you're saying, well, he's from Satan, there's no Savior available. There's no salvation available. It all circles, centers around who Jesus Christ is. I ask you this morning, who do you think he is? You think he's a fairy tale? You think he was a liar? you think he was just a crazy man? Or do you think he was who he said he was, the Lord of lords and the King of kings? And if you draw that conclusion, then why wouldn't you bend your knee? Why wouldn't you go to him and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need the forgiveness that Christ offers. See, here the protectors of the word of God, supposedly the Pharisees, set out to murder the servant, the son of God. You know, that we shouldn't be surprised at that. That happens throughout Scripture. That's always the legacy of, of God's prophets. God's prophets are gone. They go and they give the message of God. And what happens? People reject it. And they reject them. Jesus gives a parable of the vineyard. The father had a vineyard and he sent out men to tend the vineyard. And every time he'd send one out, they killed him. And finally... The father, it says, sent out his own son, and they killed him too. They didn't care. See, Satan's system dominates the world. And it sets the false system against the true system. And so there's always going to be that animosity. There's always going to be that war going on until we go back and be with him in glory. Israel, throughout its history, slew the prophets of God. It's always been the truth that the true, true servants of the Lord are attacked. That's just what happens. John 1.11, Jesus said this, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. John records that. He came unto his own. His own people rejected him. That's how much rejection Christ has faced. And so he would be condemned by these false servants. His life was one in which was under constant attack. 
And you see in verses 15 and 16, it says that he was aware of this. But when Jesus knew it, it literally means that he was aware of it. It's not something that he discovered. He already knew it because Jesus Christ is God and God is omniscient. He knows everything. God knows what's going to happen to you tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. And at 3 o'clock and at 5 o'clock. He knows all of that. He's omniscient. He transcends time. But without even saying a word or being at this meeting that they were holding, he knew it. And then it says he withdrew from there. He withdrew from there. Four simple words, but they're, they're, they're kind of sad. He withdrew from there. Think of the physical implications, but also think of the spiritual implications. Verse 16, verse 15 says he left. Verse 16 says he warned them not to make him known publicly. Second characteristic is that Jesus Christ was willing to submit to God's plan. He was willing to submit to God's plan. I mean, do you think that Jesus Christ and all his power and all his glory couldn't have just wiped this crowd out? These crowd of false servants that were coming against him? I mean, think about it. In John 18, when the soldiers came up to him and he said, Who do you seek? And they said, What? Jesus of Nazareth. Remember what happened? He said, Hey, I'm who you're looking for. And what happened? They were just blown down. If there's one place where slaying in the spirit, if you want to call it that, it was just the power of Jesus overwhelmed them. Now, these were trained soldiers. Now, these weren't the three stooges that showed up to take Jesus into custody. And when Jesus turned around and said, I am he, that literal statement of his power just knocked him over. He could have wiped out whoever he wanted to at any time he wanted to. But he didn't do that. He had the power to do it, but he didn't do it. Why? Because he was being submissive to the Father's plan. He was a servant conformed to the plan. And the plan was the express will of God. And it had a defined ending and a defined timetable. See, with God, there are no accidents. I mean, you put all this thing with the earthquake and Haiti and everything, that's all the horrific things that are happening down there. And yet you ask yourself the question, well, if God knew that was going to happen, why wouldn't have he prevented it? And you have to say, you know what? It wasn't part of his plan to prevent it. Just like it wasn't part of his plan to prevent airplanes crashing into buildings. For some reason, God has allowed this to take place under his sovereign hand. Sometimes, beloved, in the Bible, it speaks of where God literally wiped out whole nations, everything. And you say, why would he do that? That seems cruel. That, seems, that doesn't seem loving. That seems horrible. But see, you have to go back to your understanding of who God is. 
our God is a righteous God. He's a holy God. He's a pure God. He's a loving God. He's a merciful God. So when things like that happen, somehow, somehow it fits within the plan of God. I don't know what it is. I know with the war in the Gulf and and some of the things that happened over there, my nephew told me as hard and as horrible as war is, you know what? There was good that came out of that. There are people today that are going to be in heaven because America took a stand and went over there and took it to the terrorists. There's people that have heard the gospel and have responded and are now going to be in heaven as a result of an American being there with a Bible and being able to explain the gospel to them. I'm not saying that's the case with Haiti. I don't know. But to think that it caught God off guard, it didn't. And I think that we're going to see a lot of good that comes out of this. Maybe to give them a fresh start. We don't know. But Jesus Christ had the power to wipe out whoever he wanted to because he's God. He knew all this stuff was going to happen, but he didn't do it. There's this cycle that goes on in the life of Christ. It seems that he would come to an area, he would preach, he would teach, he would heal people, and then there'd be this great response, and then there would be opposition, and then he would withdraw, and then he'd go to the next place. And he would preach, and he would teach, and he would heal people. There'd be a great response. Then there'd be opposition, and then he'd withdraw. He'd withdraw to a new area, and the whole cycle would begin. And you can follow that right through the Gospels, over and over and over and over again. He kept on withdrawing. He kept on moving away. It's not that he was a coward. He had, he had created everything that we see around us. He could have acted in his own defense, but he was under the submission of the will of God. His revolution was not going to come by shedding Roman blood, but his own blood. His rule wasn't going to come by the hands of a mob or a crowd, but at the foot of a cross. See, he was totally submitted to the Father's will. See, that's the essence of his servanthood. That's, That's what we should desire in our lives, that we are servants, but we're not servants with our own cause, doing our own thing, but we're serving God and we're submissive to his will. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, and I do nothing but what my Father shows me. I say nothing but that which I hear from the Father. I mean, when he came down and he put on a human body here on earth, He basically restricted all of his personal prerogatives. He restricted and willingly submitted everything to his father. And not just his father's will, but his father's timing as well. You read many times throughout the Gospels, you're constantly hearing Jesus saying, My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Over and over and over again. He was totally submissive. And that's the heart of a servant. There was never a servant like this servant who thought it not something, Philippians tells us, to hold on to, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took on the form of a servant and being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death on a cross. 
Some think of Isaac's son who is going to be sacrificed as a type of Christ. In that case, God stayed the nice hand, but in Christ's case, it didn't. He didn't stay the hand. Christ would die. People ask the question here in in verse 16, why wouldn't he want to go around and he wouldn't tell people, he wouldn't want people to go tell them? Because in verse 16 it says, he warned them not to make him known. Seems the opposite of what we're told to do today, right? What are we supposed to do? Go and proclaim the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him known. A lot of churches have the little phrase, you know, to know him and to make him known. Well, here, Jesus is saying, no, don't make me known yet. Why is that? Because he's under the submissive will of the Father. There's probably a lot of different reasons for that, why he would do that on occasion. We've seen that several times. Remember the the man who was healed of leprosy? We went through that. And he said, hey, don't go anywhere. Go and show yourself to the priest first and foremost. I think one of the reasons Jesus always did that was because he knew that there would be a problem with secondhand stories. That's why when disciples of John came to Jesus and said, well, what should we do? Should we look for another? John wants to know. Are you the Messiah? Should we look for another? You know, what do we do here, Jesus? What did he do? Did he just say, hey, go tell John something? No, he didn't do that. He said, here, boom. And he does all these miracles right in their midst. And after they see all the miracles, he said, go tell John what you just saw. He wanted them to know firsthand about Christ. So you can't learn of Christ secondhand. Someone once said, God has no grandchildren. You don't get in to heaven because somebody in your family is a Christian. It doesn't work that way. But I think also, he didn't want to be known simply as a miracle worker. He just didn't want to be known as somebody who's just out there doing all these fancy things. That would have taken away from the real reason he came. He didn't come just to work miracles. I think also, and probably most importantly, he didn't want people to go and make him known simply because this was not the time of his exaltation. It was the time of his humiliation. It wasn't his time to stand up and set things right. And so in wonderful submission to the Father's plan, he didn't seek this exaltation that the crowds were looking to put upon him. Remember, after the feeding of the 5,000, what did they want to do? They wanted to make him king. That was their idea. Wow, somebody can just fix this. That will be our political answer. And we'll be free from the Roman government and everybody else. And Jesus, you're the man. Well, no, that wasn't the plan. And so he didn't submit to that. And all those things point to just the opposite of what the Pharisees were all about. The Pharisees didn't care about the plan of God. They cared about what they looked like, what people treated them like, what people thought about them. They were utterly selfish people. Very much self-centered. They had no clue what the will of God was. They were so much self-centered and so clueless as to the will of God, they concluded basically that they're going to execute the anointed one from God, his son. 
That's how far out in left field these, these folks were. And sometimes when you talk to religious people even today, I mean, they're out there. I was sitting in a coffee shop, not this one down here, but another one, waiting for somebody, and I heard these folks behind me just discussing things. It had a religious nature to it. And I started talking, they started, you know, talking about the Bible and things, so my ear kind of perked up, so I'm just kind of sitting there listening to what they're saying. I didn't know what church they went to or whatever. But it took me maybe two minutes to figure out they weren't on track with what Scripture's saying. They were talking about how, well, you know, you know, when Jesus has come back and his second coming, I think too many people focus on that, and I don't think it's going to be literal. I just think it's, you know, comforting words, and, you know, how long has he been saying this? He's going to come back for thousands, thousands of years. It's never going to happen. And they're just, like, mocking it almost. And yet they go back to their little church, and they sing hymns, and they do all sorts of things, thinking that they got it all right. Self-centered people. They're not willing to look at what God's word says. They only look at it through the lens of their own opinion or their own attitude or their own rejection of it. Third characteristic of this beloved servant is that he had a concern for the needy. Look at verse 15. It says he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him. And then what's it say? He healed them all. Interesting. I wonder what Benny Hinn would say with this verse. Or some of these people that are self-proclaimed healers. Jesus didn't pick and choose who he was going to. He healed them all, it says. Do you know that Jesus even healed people who didn't necessarily believe in him? Do you know that? Remember in Luke 17, we t- he talks about the ten lepers. He healed ten lepers. How many came back? One. Does that mean the other ones weren't healed? No, they were all healed. He healed them all completely. One came back. And he said to that one that came back, he says, you are made whole. See, people take that verse and they say, yeah. See, Jesus wants to make us whole physically. He's not even talking about the guy's physical issue there, because he's already been healed. What's he talking about when he says, you have been made whole? He's talking about his spiritual issue. He wasn't talking about the physical, because he already took care of that when he healed all ten of them. They all went away healed. One came back. And because he came back to the Savior, he said, you've been made whole. Ten were healed, only one was redeemed, only one was saved. He even said, I did miracles in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. But it's obvious that you did not believe, says that in in Luke chapter 10. And he goes on, he says, you'll have greater judgment than Tyre and Sidon, than Sodom and Gomorrah. Because you've seen it, and you've still rejected it. Why the demonstration of healing to everyone? I think it because it really shows the heart of God that God is in the business of helping hurting people, needy people. I mean, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they weren't interested in these kind of people, were they? 
The only time they were interested is when they could grab one to use him as a prop to set Jesus up. As we saw in the beginning of the chapter. They didn't care about these people. Matter of fact, they looked down their long religious noses at them. These people were outcasts. They were sick. They were crippled. They were deaf. They were dumb. They were blind. They weren't, they weren't interested in people like that. Because why? They didn't have any resources. <laughs> they had nothing to offer them. Who were they interested in? They were interested in the rich and the famous, the powerful. See, Jesus sought the lowly. He sought the bottom of the barrel. Sometimes we need to remember that. In Matthew 9, 36, it says that Jesus looked out on the multitude, and it says that he saw them as faint and scattered without shepherds. Without shepherds. That word faint literally means skinned. To have the skin stripped off. Ripped to shreds. That's what the shepherd is doing to the sheep when it comes to these false religious leaders. Matthew 9, 36. It also says that they were scattered. It means they were thrown down, basically left for dead. A shepherd would not do that to his own sheep. And Jesus was pointing that out. And so he looked for people and he saw them as stripped of their skin, left for dead. And those are the people that he ministered to. Those are the people that he went after. Because he cared for needy people. He reached out to the people with the various diseases. He reached out to the outcasts. He reached out to those who were the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And all the wretched people, the lower class people. Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you who are late, that labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me upon, and learn of me. I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. My yoke is easy in relation to who? In relation to your religious leaders who are binding you down with all these rules and laws and legalisms and everything else. Throw all that aside. That's why Peter can say, cast all your care on him, for he cares for you. See, if there's one message that the Haitian people need to hear today through Christian organizations is that, you know what? God cares for you. God wants to meet your need. And we're going to do that in the name of Christ. I mean, you can, you can support the Haiti relief effort in whatever way you want to. But just let me tell you, some of these organizations, I'm not saying they don't do a good work, but they don't do it in the name of Christ because that would offend people. And they would never go there. So you've got to be wise when you, when you give to these things, when these tragedies happen in our world, and we want to minister aid to them. Pick a good Christian organization that will reveal to them through the care and the nurture and the, the, the food and the water and the bandages and the medicine that, you know what, God cares for you. He loves you. That's the message they need to hear. Organizations can come along and patch up their, their huts and their houses and rebuild their buildings and everything. But if Christ isn't proclaimed in that country, it's all for naught. It's a wonderful opportunity to proclaim the glorious gospel of Christ. 
You know, sometimes people are open to spiritual things when it comes to tragedies or whatever. Um, it's called out on a chaplain's call, and this dear couple lost their 20-year-old son. He's died in his sleep. And the officer said, you know, they're not religious at all, so I don't know what you're going to do. They're not really open to doing anything. And you walk into that situation, you're going, okay, well, what am I, I going to do? They don't want to hear anything, so I, I'll, I'll just listen. So I was there for several hours, just listening to them talk about their son, his, their son and everything, and Finally, the coroner was done and went into the room. I said, do you want to go see your son one last time before they take him away? And they said, yes. And so we went in there, and they're standing there, and I noticed the wife did this. And I thought, that's interesting. I was told that they weren't religious at all. And at this time, I hadn't even offered to pray with him yet because I thought, you know what? I don't want to add insult to injury here if they're going to be ticked off at me I, I kind of want to build a relationship here so we left and went out on the, the porch as they put their husband or put the son in the in the van and hauled him away and I gave my card and I said you know I said I kind of feel like I didn't do a lot here but um, I don't know how you'd feel about this but I'm going to ask I said would you mind if I just pray with you before I leave and they both looked at me with tears in their eyes and I said, please do. I thought, wow. You know, here's people that were dead set against any kind of spiritual assistance at all. As a matter of fact, I was called out and the police called me back and they canceled it the first time I was called out because they were just so against having a chaplain come out. And yet, because of the tragedy, at least there was a somewhat openness on their part. Tragedy does that, beloved. And God wants us to cast all our care upon him because he cares for us. He was condemned by the false servants. He was, had a concern for the needy there. He was conformed in submission to the plan of God. And when you look at those first three things and you're going, and this is the Messiah? This can't be the Messiah. He's despised by the religious leaders. He spends all his time withdrawing from people. He never gathers any army for a revolution. He pays no attention to the up and the in and the, 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 you know, the, the, the crowd that's arrived. How are we going to pull off a revolution with just a bunch of riffraff? And that's who he's spending his time with. Can this be the Messiah? That's what people are asking at this point. And Matthew wants us to know that he is not only the Messiah, but he's the actual Messiah that the prophet Isaiah prophesied about. And that's why he quotes Isaiah beginning in verse 18. He says, All this in order that it might be fulfilled that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. See, what, what Isaiah wants us to see in these couple verses here. It's one of the most descriptive descriptions of Jesus Christ in Scripture. It's taken out of Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. And if you go back and you look at that portion of Scripture, you notice that Matthew doesn't quote it verbatim. 
he interprets it kind of as he quotes it. He's working under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's telling him, hey, include this part. Eh, don't put that in there. Include this part. Don't put that in there. So it's not a word-for-word quotation. But what it is, and it leads to the fourth thing here, is it's the, the commendation of the Father upon the Son. He's looking at his Son and he's saying, okay, I know all these people say all these things about you, but you know what? Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Was the father pleased with the son? Yes, he was. I mean, what did he say at his baptism? Do you remember that? This is my beloved son, what? In whom I am well pleased, right? How about his transfiguration? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. What did he do when Jesus died and rose again? He exalted him. He placed him at the right hand. He put all authority under him. And he gave to him to send the Holy Spirit, which is the ultimate consummation. See, he was commended by the Father himself. See, that just should show you how far off some religions can be, especially in Jesus' day. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were totally the opposite. They were in the total opposite camp. The one whom God was exalting and lifting up, they were condemning. The one whom God made alive, they killed. When he says there, behold my servant whom I have chosen, it's a marvelous phrase. It's used only here in the Greek New Testament, nowhere else. And it indicates this, a great firmness of choice. In secular Greek, it's used of adopting a child, taking them into a firm commitment. See, he has chosen the son, the Bible says. That's why in Hebrews 1, it talks all about how he chose the son to fulfill this role. In Isaiah 49, verse 1 it says the same thing in this wonderful verse about how the Father chose the Son. Over and over you see Jesus referred to as the chosen one. My servant whom I have chosen. In Luke 23, 35, the rulers are basically just attacking Jesus at his crucifixion. And they're mocking him. And they say this, He saved others. Let him save himself. If he be the Messiah, what? The chosen of God. See, they, it's not that they didn't understand this concept. They understood it fully. They just rejected it. 1 Peter 2, 4 says that Christ is a living stone, chosen of God and precious. Christ is the Father's elect. And then it says that he's well pleased with him. It's God's seal of approval. Do you know that you can't be pleasing to the Father unless you're found in Christ because he is the only one that is pleasing to the Father? There's no way that you could ever pull yourself up by your bootstraps far enough, do good works more than enough to finally get to the point where you could stand by yourself before a holy God and say, hey, I don't need Jesus. I'm going to stand here accepted in your holy presence because of who I am. Because look at how hard I worked. 
Look at what I've done with my life. Look at the people I've helped. Look at and you can go on and on and on. And God's going to say, no, sorry. I have to reject you. Because you did not come to me through my son. He's the only one. The only one that I've chosen. And unless you're chosen in Christ, you're not chosen at all. It's impossible for men to be pleasing to the Father unless they be found in Christ. Romans 8.8 says, They who are in the flesh cannot please God. Can't do it. If anyone is to please God, he has to be found in Christ. How well pleasing he must have been because of the utter submissiveness of his service to God. Christ never once raised his hand. Well, wait, I got a different idea here. I mean, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, remember when he said, you know what, if there's a way, maybe that this cup can pass from me. Remember? Hey, I'll, I'll take it, but you know what? Not my will, but what? Yours be done. Beloved, I guarantee you, that you will walk the road of blessing if you wake up in the morning and before your feet hit the ground next to your bed, you say, you know what? Today, Lord, not my will be done, but yours be done. Use me. Do your will through me. It's not about what I want. It's not about where I want to go or what I want to do or who I want to talk to. Lord, you lead me. You guide me through your spirit, through your word. Show me what to do. When I go into that business meeting today, it's not about my agenda. God, let it be all about your agenda. Let it be about what would bring honor and glory to you. I guarantee you, he will bless you beyond measure when you go about life with that kind of a hard attitude of submission to the Father's will. We want to close here for today, but we're going to finish this up next week. But it's so important to understand that if you leave here with just one thing, I ask that you would please understand that there's no way you can be pleasing to the Father if you have not come to Him through the Son. The Bible is very clear. It says there's one mediator between God and man. There's not several. There's not two. There's not three. There's one. And he says it's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one. And I pray that your heart would be open to him this morning. Father, we ask you this morning for your blessing. Lord, to your word. Lord, we know that you have the power to save because we've experienced firsthand. We don't have to look at somebody else and say, oh, well, I guess God can save um, I don't know, you know, I guess he did it for that person, but he's never done it for me. He will do it. I know that he's done it for me. He's done it for several other in this, in this building even today. And it's because we came to a point in our life where we were willing to cry out in utter submission to God, realizing that we had no righteousness of our own, but we cried out to a holy God and asked, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that God will answer today. He will place you in Christ so then you can be acceptable to him. Because there's no acceptability to God outside of Christ. 
Father, we thank you for the salvation that you so richly provide for us. We thank you how you work through your Son, the chosen one of God. And Lord, what an example he is when it comes to service, when it comes to servanthood. And Lord, it doesn't matter whether it's in the church or at our job or, or in our family or in our leisure. Lord, I pray that our, our lives would be in submission to your will, that we would desire to do your will, not our own, that we would seek to please you in every area of our life. And Father, we ask this in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.